0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. This podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. Today's podcast features an interview with my friend Alicia C., a woman whose story will resonate with those who've battled not only alcoholism and drug addiction, but mental health issues as well. The product of a broken home in which addiction was ripe, the chaos of her upbringing resulted in an early suicide attempt at age 12. With ever-increasing alcohol and drug use, she staggered through her troubled teenage years into her early 20s, at which time she married and had a child. But the substance abuse soon prevailed over Alicia's mostly unhappy marriage, and she found herself divorced and rapidly spinning out of control. A period of escalating self-destruction ensued with three DWIs, including a body-shattering crash which left her with a brain injury and plenty of trouble with the law. Jail time, legal troubles, and a stark inability to stop her drinking and using accelerated Alicia's downhill slide. Stints in treatment, both inpatient and outpatient, were attempted, which included some AA meetings at the time but little impact was achieved, and she quickly found herself using again, in some cases with former patients of the treatment center. With her bottom looming and despair at hand, Alicia finally surrendered to a comprehensive program that addressed both her substance abuse and her mental health issues. She emerged months later and dove into an AA program that has helped her sustain her sobriety for the past 12 years. To say that AA changed Alicia's life would be an understatement. Since her sobriety date, she has worked a program that includes lots of service work and sponsorship. She has faced major upheavals along the way that severely tested her resolve to stay in AA, but she survived them by staying firmly tethered to the center of the program. Along the way, she has turned her challenges into triumphs, including a successful career change and a renewed relationship with her daughter. Listen closely to Alicia's story, and you might find that with which you identify especially with regard to co-occurring mental health issues. As with all the interviews on my show, Alicia's story is one that needs to be heard by both recovered alcoholics and active alcoholics, and certainly by those who love them. So I invite you to tune up and tune in for the next 60 minutes to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Alicia C. My name's Alicia, and
1: I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Alicia. Hi. Hi. I feel like I just said hi to you, but that was a couple of days ago when we were sitting in the meeting together. You were on Zoom. I was in the live meeting. That's a meeting that you and I went to for a lot of years together until you recently moved.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, before the pandemic also.
0: Yeah. So the
1: pandemic really kind of forced a lot of changes to occur with how we interact NAA, which I think was really quite fabulous. Um, It's not something that probably would have happened had we not had a pandemic. And I think that it has really allowed the program to expand.
0: I think you're right. And the cool thing about the meeting that we did a couple of days ago is about two thirds of the people were live in the room there at the church. And then another 20 or so people were on Zoom. And because of the technology that they have there with the LCD projector and the pull down screen, and we had an external mic, It came about as close to a real live meeting as possible, having the Zoom folks up there. So I'm really pleased. And when I was looking up there, I realized that there were at least five people who, if they did not have Zoom, they would not be able to come to that meeting because they're all out of town.
1: Yeah. It's allowed us to broaden the scope of who we can reach.
0: It, It really does.
1: And we're so interconnected in so many different ways. And this just allows us to really branch out even further and make this program more available which I think is fantastic. I mean, there's so many people who have left that have been able to come back and attend meetings where they originally started getting sober or to expand out to new areas.
0: Yeah. Have you been to any live meetings since all this happened?
1: Yeah, I've been to a couple in Houston and I've also been to a couple here in Santa Fe.
0: Wow. Okay. And what were those like when you went in?
1: Oh, in which place?
0: Well, either place. Were they still wearing masks when when you came to Houston or were the masks not required any longer?
1: So I've done both. Yeah. So I've been to some in Houston where the masks were still required, you know, Uh several months ago. Right. And I've also been back since masks are no longer mandatory.
0: Yeah. And same
1: here. When I went to a meeting here in Santa Fe initially, it was, you know, masks were required. And this last one I went to last week, actually, they were not required.
0: Yeah. And that's how it is on the meeting that you and I were just in on Tuesday. That's been a great meeting for a long time and I know you've been a member there for a long time. You were doing some really great service work for the group there being the being the treasurer and everything. Uh, what do you think there is about that meeting that makes it so special?
1: You know, there's something about the connectedness between the members that attend that group mm-hmm. that has touched me since I very first started attending that meeting. Uh-huh. You know, There's meetings everywhere, but for some reason, there's something amongst the members that attend that group that there is a lot of caring concern and actual friendship that has evolved and developed from being a part of that group. And it's very visible. It's Mm -hmm. noticeable. I mean, you feel it when you walk in the room that everyone there cares about the sobriety and that person as a whole.
0: Yeah. And of course, that comes through loud and clear over Zoom, because when we were running that meeting before the live meetings recommenced a couple months ago, uh, that same level of sharing and feeling, I think, was very present in the Zoom meeting. So that's pretty important. How long have you been going to that meeting, would you say?
1: I would say probably six. Six years, Six maybe seven—not that long. Um, it was, you know, during a transition in life. Whenever I was able to start attending more noon meetings, and right. I checked that one out. Right, and you know, before I started graduate school, was when I was approached about doing the the treasurer uh, position. And I'm a firm believer that. Whenever I know that my my life, personal life, may get a little chaotic and busy, the best yeah. thing that I can do is take on some sort of service group with the group that will keep me connected to a meeting.
0: Yeah, And yeah. so,
1: you know, doing that treasurer job for three years really helped keep me connected.
0: That's important.
1: Well, I definitely know that. You know, in the last year, you know, moving, some other personal life changes, yeah. A bunch of, you know, chaos that kinda occurred, which happens because we're, you know, we're alcoholics.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, being connected to groups and to members via mm-hmm. service work definitely was the catalyst that kept me sober throughout some of the most trying times that I've experienced in my sobriety. Oh, yeah. And I know that, you know, whenever I have a commitment to someone else or to, to another group that I'm not constantly thinking about myself and my woes.
0: yeah. And yeah.
1: generally, it it allows me to keep that mindset that I need to keep, that my primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety, right. period.
0: Right. And it's also a way I've noticed uh, when I've recommended to guys I sponsor to get involved in service work, like either chairing a meeting for the month or being a treasurer or something, it creates an inherent commitment to be there every week or at least be accountable to the group in a way that you sometimes aren't when you're just, uh, just another member coming into the room that day. So how long have you been sober?
1: So in April, it was 12 years.
0: Was that the first time that you had gotten sober 12 years ago or uh, had you had other runs at sobriety?
1: Well, so I would say it wasn't my first attempt It Mm -hmm. was the, it's been the first time that I've actually been able to put together sobriety. Um, I I spent Uh several years going to treatment, going to detox, Uh getting in some, you know, doing lots of IOPs, trying out sobriety, but it wasn't until, you know, April 10th of 2009 that I actually put together what I would call sobriety and recovery.
0: Uh Um, Uh I mean,
1: maybe, maybe a couple of months here and there, but yeah before then. But now is when it has actually been something that I have not only done, worked towards and maintained.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's apparent that you have, if you've got 12 years and you're expressing your feelings for AA the way you are, that's pretty evident. What was different about this time that you came in 12 years ago than when you had come in previously? What was missing from those attempts?
1: When I reflect back to that day that I got sober, which, you know, obviously no one is planning the day to get sober. Yeah. Um, you know, I was experiencing a pretty significant legal consequence mm-hmm. as a result of, of my using. And, and I remember feeling somewhat relieved that it might be over. Hmm. And, um, in addition to that, you know, I, I spent some time really kind of in reflection, kind of forced sobriety reflection. Mm -hmm. where I realized that I no longer could blame anybody else for the troubles that I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. Previously, I'd always had my mom trying to save me or, you know, trying to, you know, lessen the blow or whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. and getting away with things that probably I shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And at this moment, I realized that everyone that I had been blaming for all of my problems for so long Not only were they not involved in what was happening in that moment, but they had Mm -hmm. kind of cut me out of their lives. Hmm. And Hmm. it was really a a sobering moment to realize that the only person I had to blame was myself and that if I wanted something different, I was going to have to do something different. Mm -hmm. And even in that moment, I remember thinking to myself that I didn't know if this was going to last forever, but I was going to have to try something and I'd give it a year and see how I felt.
0: Yeah. So in your mind, they had given up on you. Oh, yeah. And you needed to do something. Yeah, I get that. So before you were still playing the game, you were still uh, allowing uh, the kind of behavior to occur that you could get away with. You mentioned your mom pulling you out of the mire along the way. Is that something that goes back to your childhood? And wh- what was your early life like at home?
1: Ooh, early life was a little challenging, uh, extremely, I would say chaotic and inconsistent. You know, I had a father that had mental illness mm-hmm. and was, you know, not willing to, to address it. Mm-hmm. My, my parents were divorced. My mom had two children whom she had relatively young. She didn't mm-hmm. really have parents that were super helpful. So it was really just kind of us as a family unit. And we were figuring it out as we went along, and there was a lot of mm. instability, I would say, yeah, and so I think that perhaps you know wanting to help me soften blows had a lot to do with the fact that I'd already experienced so much in my younger years,
0: yeah, that what she
1: really didn't want to see happen was me fall apart as an adult, not only I that i mean i had a, I had a kid of my own at this point, yeah, so Wanting me to show up as a parent and be available to my own daughter so that we can break that cycle of, you know, instability and chaos that occurs that yeah. really kind of keeps this kind of stuff going.
0: Yeah. Do you know, I, I came from an upbringing that's just as chaotic and neither of my parents drank either, but there was mental illness, uh, certainly with, with my dad. And I, I found that I carried a lot of the emotional baggage from childhood into adolescence, that was one of the reasons why I acted out, whether it was with alcohol or in other ways, when I was a teenager. What was it like for you?
1: Well, I feel like everything was pretty chaotic. And I was just trying to, you know, reduce that internal kind of conflict of this is what the world looks like. Mm -hmm. And this is how I view what the world is, what's happening in the world. Mm. So, I mean, I think that you know, having all of this turmoil in my younger years and going into adolescence and even into my adult life, you know, I, I can say that these are probably compounding in why I chose to, to pick up drugs and alcohol, which I started relatively young. You did. But I really don't think that there's much of an excuse except for I tried it. I liked it. I felt like I finally could could relax and that not necessarily that I fit in, but mm-hmm. that you know, the world kind of made more sense. And mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to dodge anything. And not only that, I mean, my father had been my real father, he's deceased. Um, I was my mom, I have a stepfather who has basically raised me who was fantastic. But my real father mm-hmm. who had the mental illness was also a, um, a pretty, he, he had been struggling with drugs and alcohol my whole life.
0: Yeah, that's tough. So, about the time that you took your first drink or used your first drug, how were you feeling?
1: So, lots of confusion. I had a lot of um, ex- a lot of additional things that have happened. You know, being a being a girl, having you know, broken home, having some other things. I experienced some stuff that was probably more um, more significant than perhaps mm-hmm. you know my my older brother. However, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'd had you know, some sort of a superficial suicide attempt. I mean, I'd had all of these Mm. significant things that probably looking back on now make a heck of a lot more sense why I turned to, oh, this sounds like a really good idea. Um, Where at the time it just seemed almost fluid. It made sense that that's why I did it because it was the next thing that showed up in front of me and I was just willing to try anything to kind of escape maybe the mindset that I had that life was just torture.
0: Yeah, I get that because uh, it was kind of that way for me, too. I didn't plan or I wasn't thinking, I'm going to take a drink or use a drug because that's the way I think I can escape the way I'm feeling. It was just the next thing that happened, and just coincidentally, it made me feel different and better and whatever it did for me. How old were you when you first took your, your first drink?
1: Um. Ooh, my first drink was probably pretty young, but do you mean on my own?
0: Oh, yeah, on your own, by your own volition, let's say, because everybody has an experience where somebody gave a little alcohol when they shouldn't have, when they were small. But w- when it was your decision to pick up the drink or the drug, how old were you?
1: I was in the seventh grade. Okay. So I guess that's 12 or 13 maybe, which ironically is when I had that suicide attempt <laughs> too. Oh my. So, I mean, something yeah. was happening, you know, something yeah. was, something was definitely going on. And I think, you know, as an adult that has, you know, evolved somewhat in life, I look back and like, wow, something was definitely happening at that point. But Mm -hmm. you can't really blame anyone. I had always been this kid that kind of didn't really have a lot of social friends. I really kind of spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. with myself. I had a few close Mm -hmm. friends and that was really it. Everything else was pretty superficial. Mm -hmm. So no one would have really known what was happening because it was all internal.
0: Was there a point during that internal struggle that you were having that you reached out for help or if somebody tried reaching in to you? So
1: I did I did end up uh spending some time in a in a treatment center for depression. You know, that was back before insurance right now. So it was several months and you know, my mom uh-huh. got me into therapy and I had this great therapist. Um so it's not like I didn't have someone trying to to reach in. Um but I think right. that I had been so reserved and so guarded for so long that I didn't know how to let anyone in or how to articulate really what it was that I was feeling because it was, it Mm -hmm. had become so normal for me, even though Mm -hmm. it was, it was uncomfortable, that was normal. That was my baseline.
0: That was your baseline at 12 or 13 years of age when you took that first drink or started using, could you notice an immediate effect from it and was it one that you wanted to continue to chase or what was your experience?
1: gosh you know it's so funny cuz i don't i don't ever think about that stuff very much but i would say obviously had some sort of euphoric feeling how or else i wouldn't have wanted to do it again. I mean, there was something that was believing, yeah. but I, even today I would say I didn't look back and think, Oh, it cured how I felt in the moment or, you know, it, it was an escape uh-huh. and it numbed me out. I don't think I ever felt that way. I think I just felt like, Oh, this, yeah. this feels, this feels all right. This feels good.
0: Yeah.
1: So I don't, I don't have any real connection to gosh. I remember the first time that I got drunk or I remember the first time that I used drugs. None of that really has a significant impact on me. It was just, yeah. it it was different than probably what I was yeah. feeling. And so I just kept mm-hmm. doing it. And I didn't have anyone telling me mm. to not.
0: I remember smoking grass for the first time, not really knowing what to expect. And it felt so good that I thought, yeah, I got to do that again. That was my thinking at the time. and But yet I didn't pursue it. I was provided with marijuana from somebody else who was smoking it at the time. But um, like you, I didn't necessarily think I got to get over this feeling the way I'm feeling, so I'll take a drink or take a drug. So, this so that followed you uh, through middle school and into high school. Did you hang with people who were drinkers, or who did you hang with?
1: So, I went to high school in Miami. And uh-huh. you know, moved there kind of abruptly and I I guess I would say I always hung out with the partiers, you know, we can find each other. Uh-huh. Um sure. did a lot of, you know, going out to clubs and being young and underage and mm-hmm. feeling adult like being able to do that and sure. You know, I I wouldn't say that I had a particular group or crew that I hung out with, but I definitely could you know, hang out with, with everyone. And for the most part, it seemed like everyone was doing what I was doing and mm-hmm. I, I didn't have anyone say, well, that's not true. I did have a couple of people who said, you know what, something different happens to you or, you know, you really dive into this. It's not the same as everyone else, but I thought mm. I just need new friends. <laughs>
0: Uh, So they were telling you that at that point. So they saw something. Something.
1: I responded differently. And I just, I mean, it's as embarrassing as this is going to sound, is I thought they're just jealous.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was wondering, whether or not you, because of that, sometimes people who are able to do the kind of things that you say you are doing become the leaders, the natural leaders. Everybody wants to follow that person because they can do whatever they're doing with impunity or or without consequences. W- were you a leader or a follower at that point, or you were you on your own?
1: I think I was probably more independent than a leader or a follower I um, navigated between lots of different groups of people and just didn't really Mm -hmm. have, I didn't follow the same rules as everyone. Obviously, I didn't Mm -hmm. think that they applied to me and that I could do whatever I wanted. And I just went where the wind blew me. Hmm. I I didn't follow a certain group around and I certainly wasn't directing anyone else to do anything. I would invite people to do things with me, but Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wouldn't consider myself a leader or a follower.
0: Mm -hmm. Did you get into trouble?
1: So I didn't in high school, but in junior high, I did. In junior high, uh-huh. um, I got caught with this bottle of stuff that you huffed and um, I had to go to an alternative school for a semester, which, you know, I'm such a wow. good adapter that, you know, which like most of us are, that they told me you're going to have to go to this mm-hmm. alternative school and these are going to be the, this is going to be the criteria and I just said, mm-hmm. OK, and did it very quickly and got through it and then went back to school mm-hmm. like nothing. And hmm. high school, I didn't have any consequences. I was a pretty good student, which I learned, I guess, that, mm-hmm. you know, being a good student kind of prevents a lot of parental interaction within schooling. And um, mm-hmm. no, I didn't have I didn't have any kind of issues in actually my senior year. I made, you know, all A's and I didn't have to even take finals. And
0: were you a functional drug and alcohol user by that point?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess. I mean, it it wasn't something I can tell you that at that age in my life, it didn't dominate.
0: Right. I get it.
1: It was not like how it was, you know, in my early 20s where it was something I did all day, every day. I mean, at that point, it was something I I did on the weekends or when I went out. It Mm. certainly wasn't something I did at home or something I thought about all the time or obsessed about. You know, I do think that yeah. there is something yeah. about, you know, external events that occur that kind of help us cross over that line, something environmental. Oh, yeah. And, you know, up until that point, I had oh, just yeah. kind of been stumbling through life, but it wasn't something that necessarily dominated every every thought or action.
0: Yeah, I get that. You mentioned your early 20s. Uh, could you walk us down the road a little bit to that point in your life from high school and where you were headed after high school?
1: So after high school, I, you know, I had tried to do some, some college stuff. I, I really just wanted to be an adult and just kind of be on my own uh-huh. and, you know, tried to get some jobs, whatever, but ultimately ended up working in a bar because, you know, it was so conducive to my lifestyle. By this point, it was really kind of mm-hmm. accelerating. I was on my own. I was mm-hmm. living independently. I was drinking a lot. I was doing a lot of cocaine. Mm-hmm. I also met. A man and, you know, mm-hmm. we ended up getting married and having a kid. And so, I mean, by 22, I was married by 23. I was a mom. So
0: wow. it was
1: those kind of things happened really, very quickly. And I married someone who had some similar troubles that I had, which is obviously uh-huh. why we connected so quickly. Having a kid that young too makes it really, very difficult because someone has to be the parent. And there was a lot of distance that grew between us because I couldn't go out all the time. But I like. maintained my using status. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Getting married and having a kid that young really changed some stuff. You know, although I tried to really kind of get my stuff together, you know, I ended up having this, mm-hmm. you know, he and I were struggling. We end up separating or we end up. I end up having this car wreck where I injure myself pretty mm. badly at, at 25, Mm, 25. And then the next year divorce him. And I I mean, I had head injuries. So I I was in tear hospital for a long time. So I had a bunch of brain injuries. I broke my neck. I punctured my lungs. I broke my ribs. I mean, Mm. I was really injured for a long time um, and decided that, you know, life was going to be, I got a DWI out of that. But, you know, at that point, my impulse was really kind of out of control and I was not able to stop doing, I didn't do any drugs. Because I was being tested all the time, but I drank.
0: I see. And
1: I drank pretty I see. excessively.
0: So this is at 25 when you have this accident, and it's a drunk driving mm-hmm. accident. You were going through a separation. You had, a, what, a three-year-old at home? Yes. And you get into this horrendous auto accident. Uh, how long were you hospitalized?
1: You know, it's funny. Obviously, I don't recall a whole lot of it. If you ask my daughter, she says like a month or two, maybe a month or two. Wow. But I was in Herman. I was wow. life lighted to Herman, and then I spent some time mm-hmm. there, and then I did the tier the TIR outpatient right. at their challenge program yeah. for about nine months, which is cognitive wow. therapies and stuff for brain injuries.
0: So you had a TBI, yes. a traumatic brain injury.
1: And what's funny about that is, you know, I try to explain to people today that I still have residual effects of that, and I'm aware of them. Oh, and yeah. they, they, they oh, yeah. show up, you know, when I'm tired or, you know, whenever I'm stressed out. And it's, you know, my uh-huh. emotions or, you know, my uh, mm-hmm. word recognition, I'll, I'll misuse words. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is is due to kind of that that injury, although it's been a long time ago, residual mm-hmm. effects will always be there. And I just have to be aware of them and, and live my yeah. life a little bit differently to kind of take care of myself as a result of that, which I learned yeah. Yeah. in that program. That these are the things that will affect you and that you're going to have to be mindful of how you show up in life.
0: Yeah. So can you acknowledge learning any lessons from that DUI and that horrendous accident? What did you attribute that to?
1: Hmm. Well, so my blood alcohol was really high. It was 0.38. Right. I get that it was related to drinking.
0: Right. But was that a wake-up call for you of any kind? or, or, Or did you come to the realization that, boy, I better stop doing that?
1: No, what I thought was I needed to stop driving, is <laughs> <Okay. laughs> that I'm not a good driver. Um, I because I continued to drink, but I just took taxis yeah. for a long time. But it took that happened when I was 25, I didn't get sober till I was 35. Really, and so several more run ins, another DWI conviction, another, another arrest for a DWI, another. Multiple accidents where I should have been arrested, where I called my mom at the scene and she came out there. Oh, my. Lots of things occurred in the next 10 years before I actually got sober. But that was a pretty significant, I guess, experience, because that was when I finally had the first real consequence of mm-hmm. this is very damaging. And I only injured myself and the car accident was just me and people felt sorry for me because i had been injured so badly it, so it wasn't although mm-hmm. it was a consequence it wasn't one where people thought you have got to stop drinking uh-huh it was one where people thought i'm so glad that you survived this we didn't think that you were going to make it
0: wow so here in texas of course mm-hmm. around that time multiple dwis could land somebody in prison what was your experience so
1: the first one that i had you know i got a year probation I'm such a good uh-huh. probationer. I'm such a good rule follower. And I'm such a good, I guess, BSer, um, that I got through that just in the one year perfectly fine. The next one I had was a couple of years later. And in that one, that's the one where I was told I had to do treatment as a condition uh-huh. of my probation. So sure. I did a residential treatment. That was the first time I had went. I had tried an outpatient program before that, which I got kicked out of. Okay. But.
0: why they kick you out? I'm curious.
1: Well, because I had gotten really intoxicated um, and fell down, I guess, because I, I woke up <laughs> with this bloody lip um and i don't really wear makeup or lipstick for sure right. but i went in to this right. outpatient with this red lipstick on to kind of cover to kind of <laughs> cover up the the busted lip and they they pulled oh, me aside and said you know when you really want to do something about your substance use you can come back to us. But until then, we're going to go ahead and ask you to leave because your participation is kind of disruptive.
0: Now, this outpatient after the inpatient that you were in?
1: Oh, no. That was an outpatient before the inpatient.
0: Okay. So you tried outpatient first and then you went inpatient. How long were you inpatient for?
1: So I guess 30 days.
0: 30 days. Yeah, that's about right.
1: It was 2004, I guess. Uh-huh. You know, and then I so I didn't impatient, I did a lot of I did I think two rounds of IOP afterwards. Right. I did not stay sober. I don't even know if I stayed sober through IOP. And then, you know, wow. ended up my things really kind of took off from that point. I started meeting some people who were although I had been doing, you know, cocaine and 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 drinking before then, um I tried intravenous drug use at that point with some people I had mm-hmm. gone to treatment mm-hmm. with. And it really kind of accelerated everything.
0: Yeah, talking about heroin.
1: The first thing that I um, I used intravenously was heroin. But I was such a, a speed and cocaine person that, as much as it was it was great doing it, I was really sick afterwards. Uh huh. I started using cocaine and, and methamphetamine via intravenous drug use too. Wow.
0: Yeah, those are pretty nasty, aren't they?
1: They are. It, it just became an addiction. All on its own.
0: I see. Yeah. So it was a physical addiction that that had manifested itself for the first time in your life.
1: It was pr- it was pretty intense. That I, I mean, bad. talk about obsessive behavior. I mean, just the ritual of trying to get it and trying to get everything that you need. And it was it was a different experience than anything that I had gone through. And I ended up back in treatment again. You know, the following year, uh-huh. you know, I went to a therapist's uh-huh. office looking for some sort of, you know, barbiturate of some sort to, <laughs> to go to uh-huh. sleep, and um, <laughs> yeah. she quickly said, uh, she said I wanted to give me a drug test, and I told her I was hot, and she got up and opened oh. the door and told me to leave her office and to go get treatment and come back whenever I was. Really ready. to. I mean, so it was a constant theme that people were like, when you're ready to do something, you can come back. But until then, we're going to ask you to leave now.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I mean, obviously, I was doing some sort of drug seeking. So,
0: yeah. And the fact that you found a way to go use after you got out of the facility with people with whom you were in the facility speaks to some of the difficulties people have with that. I'm curious, when you were inpatient for the 30 days or even in the outpatient the first couple of times, what was going through your head about what what was going on around you? Did you see, did you have a desire to really do anything about it or were you just...
1: I was going through the motions.
0: You were just serving the time.
1: Yeah, the second time, when I went the first time, it was because of my probation. When I went the second time, I really knew that I was starting to get sick. And I really needed some help. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the next year I went to another treatment center. So those two were at the same place. The next one I went to was um, the, the third one that I went to was one that my parents had found for me, my mom and my stepfather, because obviously mm-hmm. I had a lot of trauma that I needed to yeah. to address also. And going, going yeah. to treatment to address my, my substance use disorders was one thing but I really needed to address some of the trauma that I had experienced. I mean, I learned a lot about how to how to handle some of the things that had happened and got a lot of resolve. Yeah. However,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the substance use part was just such an issue for me at that point that just resolving the trauma, that wasn't enough. So yeah. for me, I had had all of the substance use disorder treatment. Um, now I was getting some trauma treatment. The dilemma uh-huh. that showed up is that I didn't know how to incorporate any of it into my life. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Okay. So you had all the information you needed. You just didn't have the input mechanism to really affect you on the inside, huh?
1: Or the willingness. I'm going to tell you, my first time in treatment, um, they did this thing called the Willingness Award, and I was so (laughs) excited that I wanted to win the Willingness Award, and I had no idea what that meant. I won the Willingness (laughs) Award, and I really fought (laughs) to win it, and I did. But looking back now, I had no desire to be sober. I just wanted to win the award. Wow. So looking back, whenever I realized like I had all of the, I had been given all the information, I had been provided the resources and the tools. I had been able to get some resolve with some of the trauma. What I didn't have was the Uh willingness to implement it into my life with finally having people in my life really kind of give up and say, we're no longer going to participate in this with you. If you want to self-destruct, you can do that on your own. We're not going to help you with that anymore. Uh, Really pushed me to, you've got to start using this stuff and doing something differently if you really want to do it different.
0: This is what you're telling yourself on a constant basis at this point?
1: This is what I told myself, you know, the day I got sober, I said it was not a plan. I was again arrested. And this time I was arrested for another car accident. Oh my. You know, I was 35. My daughter had been living kind of in and out with my parents and my ex-husband and me, and it was not a good scene, but I had this accident. Yeah. I injured. I was coming across a freeway, the wrong direction, caused an accident. Mm. The person was injured. I was intoxicated. Mm-hmm. I left the scene oh. and I was coming back from Austin. It was Lee County. They found me pretty quickly and right. they arrested me and it was, they arrested me for, you know, an accident involving injury or death plus a, um, a third DUI. And you know, my yeah. mom. I called my brother, who was a lawyer, um, from the scene. Uh-huh. You know, I had I had track marks. I was not in good shape. I was clearly intoxicated. Uh-huh. He said, "Whatever you do, just don't say anything. Let me make some phone calls." And yeah, so my mom left. They decided to stay on their. My mom, and my stepfather were on vacation. They stayed on their vacation. The agreement was that no yeah. one was going to bond me out, uh-huh. and that I was just going to have to sit this out, which I did. And okay. I needed that in that moment. I had to have. The real clarity of my life is is destructing and either I can continue on this path or I can do something different. What was my choice to be?
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So like the hardcore consequence of actually being behind bars. How old were you when this happened and and how long did you suffer the consequences of that?
1: So I, uh, I was 35. Legally. I actually, it was two days after my 35th birthday. And as a matter of fact, when I walk in, they're excited. Look who's having a birthday, <laughs> kind of making fun <laughs> of me. I was in uh-huh. the county jail for, for two months. And that was before I went to court because I had to uh-huh. get indicted and then I could go to court, so I went to court. Right. And I was really surprised that they were offering me probation.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. On the third DUI.
1: Well, they dropped the third wow. DUI, and I had to plea out on the accident involving injury or death, the failure to stop and render aid. Okay. So um, I got five years probation, yeah. which I took, and. You know, Mm -hmm. my mom let me come back to Mm -hmm. her house for a couple of weeks. And then they they put me into an apartment. And it's so funny that they had been paying for so many things for me for so long that this time when she said, we're going to put you in this apartment Mm -hmm. and we're going to pay six months rent, but we're not paying anything else. You're going to have to figure some stuff out. And I remember Mm -hmm. looking at her and saying, I'm really grateful. Thank you. And meaning that. Wow. Because I knew she didn't have to do any of it.
0: Yeah. When you went into that apartment, this is how long before your actual sobriety day?
1: Well, I, I count my sobriety day from the day I was arrested, that April 10th. And when I got out on June 4th, and I went to a meeting that day. Uh-huh. And, you know, wow. I went to meetings every day pretty much thereafter. Um,
0: How had you learned about AA?
1: I had learned about AA from being in treatment before.
0: Sure, okay. And I
1: had been in and out of going to meetings and going to treatment and whatever. I mean, I'd been involved in AA, so I knew people in AA. But most people just thought I was a joke because I didn't stay sober. And so this time, I mean, I really was super hyper-focused on... My job is to come here and use this to as a tool to get sober. Uh-huh. I'm not here to make friends, I'm not here to whatever. Wow. Eventually I realize if I don't start making some friends in this, I'm probably not going to survive it either. But my initial my initial goal was this was oh, my yeah. job every day to come here and learn about myself and practice sobriety. And I treated it like that. I treated it super wow. serious and 100% you know focused on my goal is to come here to get what I need in these rooms. And then to go home and practice it.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, that's something. So you had had enough, obviously, by this point, you came into AA. Did you get a sponsor right away? How did, how did the first couple weeks or couple months of your AA experience look like?
1: Okay. So in this sobriety, right, the one that we're in now, I had, this is, this is where I know right. God exists, right? So I had right before, you know, I had that arrest and stuff. Maybe six months before that, I had been at a meeting mm-hmm. and this girl came up to me. I was intoxicated at the meeting. This girl came up to me and she started talking to me. She gave me her phone number. I got her, uh, she got mine and said, you know, you should call me, whatever. And for some reason, I thought about this girl and tried to call her when I got to my mom's house. And I got her voicemail and I didn't leave a message. Uh And I told you, I started going to meetings with some people Uh that I knew. And that girl was at every meeting that I went to. And when she saw me, she said, Hey, how are you doing? You know, whatever. And (laughs) I went about two weeks out of jail. I went to hear her tell her story. And afterwards Uh I went up to her and said, so I really need a sponsor. And she said, I'm so glad that you, I huh. have been wanting to ask you about this. She pulled out her calendar and we, <laughs> she started putting me in it right then. <laughs> um, and I'm still friends with her today. Wow. She lives in Dallas now. It, and I eventually uh-huh. one day I said to her, you know what's funny is I tried to call you when I got out of jail. Of all people, she was the person I tried to call. And then I ran into her everywhere. So I do think. That was not on accident,
0: yeah, that's a god that's a God thing, isn't it?
1: Absolutely.
0: What were the the meetings like when you first came in, let's say the first six months? Did you feel comfortable, uncomfortable uh, did you Did you want to engage with the fellowship or were you resistant to that? what What was it like during your first year of sobriety?
1: So I would say I was pretty resistant to the fellowship. I'd had some I'd had some experiences that I thought were were you know less than stellar. I was really resistant to mm-hmm. buddy up with a lot of people, but I can tell you what my sponsor said to me was, she said, hey, look, when someone comes in, she's like, I get it, maybe you have some issues with people who have been here for a while with some of the stuff that you know you did, they did, yeah. whoever, who cares. But when you see someone new come into this room right. who raises their hand and says that they're new, right. you need to go over to them and you need to introduce yourself to them and you need to get their phone number and start calling them.
0: Uh-huh. So
1: she really instilled that in me. Huh. So a lot of times I ended up knowing mm-hmm. people who had less sobriety than me because that's what it was ingrained in me to do. You need to make if you feel like you came in here and people didn't make you feel welcome, you need to be doing you need to make other people feel welcome. You need to make sure that you go up to them, you talk to them, you get their phone number and then you call them. You include them. You make them feel welcome. Yeah. That that is your job in this right now is for you to now start sticking your hand out to other people.
0: That's brilliant advice, huh?
1: It made a huge difference.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So you got to know a lot of new people. And because they were newer than you, you had more experience and were able to share with them what experience you had?
1: Well, no, I think it's more it was teaching me about how to develop friendships with people and not... Uh And not feel so judged because obviously I was judging myself of my own failure previously. Oh yeah. But in addition uh-huh. to that, you know, if you go back through the literature, right. It tells you uh-huh. that a fellowship grows a- around you. Like mm-hmm. it does. You don't step into a fellowship. A lot of times it builds. Mm-hmm. And this was mm-hmm. me. I didn't even realize that at the time was me building a fellowship. Hmm. And although, you know, I may not know a lot of these people today, There have been plenty of times where people have said to me, they didn't realize, you know, years later, how much sobriety I had, because I would go up to them, hey, how's it going? So glad that you're here, whatever. And they would think that I was kind of, you know, on the level with them with six months to a year sobriety to learn that I had eight or nine years. Uh Because I just think that it's so important to make people feel welcome. And that there is no separation based off of time that we're all trying to do this together.
0: Yeah. And, and you and I are eye to eye on that one because I, I believe the very same thing. My sponsor had me do that too early on. He said, I want you to meet at least three people in every meeting you go into. And I want you to uh, make sure that you come early, stay late, get to meet the people, don't run out of the meeting like you used to do. And it did. It made a big difference, uh, certainly within that first year of sponsorship, because I didn't get a sponsor till I was sober almost a year oh, wow! and almost went back out and drank because I didn't have any real investment in the program. How invested were you during the first couple of years? Let's say even up to five years. Did, were you all in?
1: I was absolutely both feet all in. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: of course, that's after almost six years of struggling.
0: Yeah, of course. Jeez.
1: So when I got sober on April 10th of 2009, I mean, both feet were in 100%. However, yeah. I did not go to meetings early and stay late. I did not engage with a lot of people that have been around for a long time. Hmm. Really, I went in, I got my AA, I would talk to some new people and leave. Hmm. It wasn't until I was about, I guess, four or five years sober that I realized I have got to start making some friends in this thing, or else I'm never going to make it. I had a handful of friends that I considered good friends. But it wasn't until about four or five years sober that I started really kind of broadening and meeting more people and having more people get close to me. I was super shut off, unwilling to let people get close still. I was still really guarded, protecting myself from, although I had had addressed a lot of trauma from earlier years, I still had residual effects from that. So letting people get close to me was not my main goal. My main goal when I got here was to stay sober because that had been such a huge challenge for me. So developing relationships was kind of secondary.
0: And it wasn't until
1: after I had my father died when I was about four years sober. And Uh that was around the time that I started realizing I was going to have to start really investing differently and creating relationships or else I wasn't going to stay. I think I've always been more emotionally driven. So I Uh think that, you know, me speaking authentically and genuinely from the heart is Pretty, it just comes naturally for me, Good. which yeah. is why I think it's harder for me to have you know surface relationships with people, and I always have you know as few select people i 'm pretty close with because i I am so um heart and soul driven
0: yeah, I get it that uh-huh.
1: you know having that many relationships with people is hard, so when i when I would get called on, it took me forever to learn how to talk in meetings. I Uh do know that for the, for many years prior to my sobriety date, I would get called on and I'd always say I wanted to listen and Uh I learned, I made a conscious decision. I guess I should say that when I got sober, that if I got called on, I was just going to share and I was just going to share, even if it was just what was going on with me at that moment, Uh because maybe that's all I have to offer and give at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I may not
1: have a lot of sobriety. I may not have a lot of this or a lot of recovery, but part of my participation is sharing my experience and that, that is how we connect and bond with people.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: a lot of times people don't know you unless they get to hear what it is that you're thinking, feeling and saying.
0: Yeah, so
1: yeah. I made this conscious commitment that I was never going to pass.
0: Hmm. And
1: to date, I still have never said, I'm just going to listen. So when I get called on, no matter what frame of mind I'm in, Uh I share what's going on with me, where I'm at, if it's on topic or not, whatever the case may be, because I think that that is my duty and commitment. It is actually 12 step work. If you look in the 12 of 12, sometimes the only service work that we can provide is sharing in a meeting when we get called on.
0: Yeah, I get that.
1: So for me, that was it was really important and i've still maintained that and and yeah. sometimes people think oh my god i can't believe you shared that and then other people come up to me afterwards and say i'm so glad you shared that i'm struggling with that and i don't hear anyone ever say anything
0: yeah yeah i understand and that that is such an important thing to be able to do to be able to share openly and honestly with, with people in the program. So when was, this sounds like a turning point in your program when you finally went from, I'm just listening to, I will share from the heart every time I get called on. How long had you been sober by the time you had that realization?
1: Well, I made the decision to do that when I got called on, when I showed up in 2009 and have been sober since, but it, it probably didn't change or I probably didn't have like the the emotional uh, connection to it or impact Uh from it until probably about when, when my, I remember when my dad died about how that, how that was affecting me and how I Uh learned that it was okay to cry
0: and it was okay
1: to share these difficult things that I'm dealing with in a space where it's supposed to be
0: safe. Yeah. And so I
1: think that it was probably that, that was a huge turning point just because i was i was sharing more deeply i mean yeah. i always i learned how to share i learned how to say what was going on or share on topic or whatever but when it transitioned into kind of more this is what's happening for me right now and it's really mm-hmm. very difficult and painful was mm-hmm. probably that
0: mhm that's similar to my situation where the day my dad passed away well actually i i was here and he was he was out out west but Uh, The day I got there to my sister's house to do the funeral, I went to an AA meeting before anything else. The morning my mother died, uh, two hours after I closed her eyelids and she breathed her last breath, we were all bedside, I was sitting in in a meeting of AA and sharing what was going on, a very heartfelt share, because that's exactly what had just happened. What was beautiful about it was it's like, it wasn't what they said it was just the energy that shifted in the room and it kind of enveloped me in knowing that i was sitting in a place of real love and acceptance that here i had gone through this i could share it with others and it would make just a huge difference did you did you find that with your dad too
1: so you know he and i were not close i spent the last you know 5 or 6 months of his life trying to clear up the the past that we had because we knew yeah. he was terminal but, um so, what's interesting about this is, so, I had started, so, I told you I had gone to a patient, and they reached out to me about bringing meetings in-house,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so, I had been taking meetings in-house to their patients for about five or six months. So, the day he died was the day that I went up there to, t- to take meetings in, and he huh. died that morning, and I left work and that evening i had asked someone to come with me because i didn't think that i would be able to really do the meeting but i wanted yeah. to still you know be there and show up be consistent whatever wow. be accountable and at the end of the meeting they had known that i had kind of been struggling yeah. with with what was happening i shared that he died that morning yeah and um how you know, it was really important for me to still be there that evening because I was really grateful that I had somewhere to go yeah. and I was grateful that I could still show up for other people, even when uh-huh. I was dealing with something that was so, uh, so difficult Yeah, that, you know, this wasn't, ex- it was kind of like a, a reconfirming or solidifying my commitment to my recovery being there because without it, I didn't have anything else. And yeah. I knew that. I don't Mm -hmm. know if I really knew that before because everything was always an excuse to not, to not show up, to not have to do the hard Mm -hmm. stuff, whatever, Mm -hmm. but I made a conscious decision to still show up to that meeting and Mm -hmm. to still do everything that I was supposed to do commitment wise. And I guess that's probably why service work is so important to me now is
0: Mm -hmm. that anytime
1: that something is going on, I still show up.
0: Yeah. Even,
1: even if I don't want to, and life is difficult and hard and heavy at the moment, I have this connection, this commitment to the group or whatever, that mm-hmm. I still do it. And so wow. that experience probably really kind of changed and shifted how I viewed how that doing that kind of stuff helped me.
0: So that was at about four years that that happened after you were in the program.
1: Yeah, I celebrated four years in April and it was the February, last day of February so just about a month away from having four years.
0: So that commitment that you made to take that meeting or start that meeting in the clinic there kind of became a touchstone for you with AA and service work, huh? Absolutely. Huh. That's great.
1: Which is why I sink it out when stuff is, you know, go a little chaotic in my life. Right. I mean, I usually seek out ways to be connected to the program because I know that that's, that's what helps me get through it.
0: Yeah. So you're working the program at this point. You're already through your steps by this point at four years. Oh yeah. So what kind of challenges did you face then? Obviously your dad passing was a big one, but what kind of other challenges between that event and today that had you not been sober you might not have lived through or gotten through? Were there times that things came up that made you want to just toss AA to the curb and drink again?
1: Oh yeah, there were there's yes, there has been. Um, you mean you want to know what those things are?
0: <laughs> well, if you care to tell me, yeah.
1: Well, you know, I mean So at, you know, right before 4 years is when my dad died. At 5 years, I, you know, I met someone in AA. We started dating, we ended up getting married. Mhm. Which turned out to be not not a great experience in the end. Yeah. And so that um there was a lot of difficulty around the ending of that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but, you know, I, I blamed, I, bl- I, I think I thought that how can people be sober and behave this way?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so in the last couple of years, I've had to remember or realize that, you know, just because we're sober, we're not perfect. Yeah. And you know i I hold people in recovery to a different standard,
0: yeah, yeah, and
1: think that you know I've had to go through so much and so much personal change right. along the way and realizing that there are certain things that I cannot do and stay sober, right, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think that that has to be the same for everybody, and I that re- yeah. this has kind of been an opportunity for me to realize that everyone's recovery is different,
0: yeah, and yeah.
1: I know for me that my honesty and my, my ability to go back and clean up things that have been damaging, um, mm-hmm. are really important. You know, when I was nine, right before I had nine years sober, I, uh, I met this young girl who had been involved in a, an accident where, where a person did not survive. There was a fatality mm, mm-hmm. and I got really close with this girl and I'm so close mm-hmm. with her now. And yeah. her whole experience reminded me that, you know, I had this car accident, which started out my sobriety
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I didn't even know the person's name who I'd been involved in the car accident with. Hmm. And watching how this was affecting her and how I had just kind of gone on my way, thinking, you know, I took my consequence. Look at me. Look how great I'm doing in my sobriety. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. doing all this stuff. And I realized that I hadn't ever attempted to find out what happened to that person Hmm. or, you know, even what their name was or make any kind of amends to them. And so I sought out on this journey to do that.
0: Really? Wow.
1: Yes. And, you know, I dug through a bunch of paperwork. I had the person's name. I had their address. I had their phone number. And I did a lot of work on it and a lot of prayers on it. And, you know, I tried to call. The number was disconnected. But I mm-hmm. wrote this letter. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I did a bunch of research to make sure they supposedly still lived at the address and mm-hmm. they survived mm-hmm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did write a letter to the person giving them my name, my phone number, my address, whatever it is that they would need and that I was willing to hear whatever it is they had to say to me Hmm. that, you know, that day changed my life. You know, I had never drank or done drugs since then, but I recognized that it probably changed their life too. And that if there's anything that they needed from me today, that I was willing to do it. Wow. And, you know, I popped it in the mail. Um, and today to date, (laughs) I still have never heard anything back from them, Hmm. but the letter never got returned to me either. Wow. So, and I guess I tell you that because, you know, fast forward, you know, here I am, you know, that was at nine years at almost 11 is when things in my life kind of blew up or Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess 10 and a half. Um, And I remember that sometimes it takes some of us a little bit longer to realize the damage that we have done and how we need to repair it. And I get stuck in the whole, you need to repair it now. And I forget that it took me a long time to realize what I needed to do. And that didn't mean that I was bad. It just meant that I just, you know, when the time is right, the time is right. And we we know it and we take care of it. Hmm. So Hmm. I've had a lot of resolve in in the last year and a half around some of the stuff that happened you know, and I really wanted to blame AA and the people that were in it and yeah. their bad behavior and whatever. Uh-huh. But I uh-huh. realized that people are just people. Right. Right. I mean, we're all just trying to do whatever we can to get through that moment to be able to survive ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, I was in graduate school at the time. So that was kind of chaotic, which is a whole other experience.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Realizing
1: that I could do that. Um, uh-huh. I learned that even though I was going through some really difficult stuff, that I could still achieve goals uh-huh. and be successful. And, uh-huh. you know, apply for jobs in uh-huh. other states and get them uh-huh. even having a, you know, a criminal background yeah. and, you know, be successful in in what it is that I want to do and keep trying for things. Because there was a long time where I didn't try for stuff because I didn't think that yeah. I would be able to.
0: Yeah. And so learning yeah.
1: that, you know, I I have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and that nothing happens on accident. All of this lined up divinely is exactly how it should have been. Yeah. You know, as much as I wanted to be angry and leave AA, I'm going to tell you, I had a whole plan to leave AA. I mean, I was trying to ditch every service commitment that I had, which I had a lot. I was on a board at a club. Um, I was still the treasurer at that club, that that group that you and I spoke about. And I was trying my hardest to get rid of this. I had sponsees. Oh, the board, now the board thing actually was after. Um, I forgot that I had been nominated and I was leaving AA effectively May 31st of last <laughs> year. And on June 4th, I got a call that said, surprise, congratulations, you were elected. Yes. And I thought, I'm never going to get away from this. But,
0: oh my. you know,
1: God shows up in ways for us and we can appreciate it or we can resist it. And yeah. so it, yeah. once again, it kept me connected. Yeah. You know, and then I get here and I do, you know, my, my job and I'm on all these committees and I end up getting connected to someone who helps me get connected to a woman here where I live, who's super involved. And next thing you know, I have a sponsor that's getting me involved in all other kind of stuff here. Wow. It's everything lines up. And so I didn't end up leaving and I spoke very openly about how I was angry at AA and angry at the people. and
0: What were people telling you when you were expressing that? Because I remember seeing you in meetings and you were, you were one angry woman. I was pretty pissed. <laughs> I didn't want to approach you because I thought, I'll let the women do that. What kind of feedback were you getting when you were about ready to diss the program for good?
1: So because some of the conflict I had was with other women and my husband at the time, uh-huh. okay. um, uh-huh. there was a real division. Uh huh. Um, and I think that it was a lot for people to take on. And plus, you know, my former husband was denying some of the stuff.
0: So there was a lot of,
1: and of course he kept telling me, oh, that's private. And, you know, I just, I really think that this is where I should be able to share this. I had several women come up to me afterwards who were dealing with something very similar.
0: Okay, good.
1: Maybe not with other women in AA, but dealing with that in their home life. And so it actually allowed us to have Something to to support each other through, and then yeah. I had I had several girlfriends, some I knew long before I was ever in recovery, some uh-huh. that I know from AA um, mm-hmm. that were really very supportive and you know helping me through it. But you know what, we're all on this journey, right? I mean, yeah, we are. It takes what it takes. We have to work through it, however we work through it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: telling someone that they're working through it wrong is uh, really unfair because. Yeah. Everyone deals with stuff differently i was I was pretty I was angry I was I'll bet you were but mostly I yeah. was hurt
0: yeah i remember I remember that and, and seeing you at the time, um, I knew some of the story, but but not not very much of it and, and that's one of the most difficult things i've seen this happen for other people in the program where outside circumstances intrude upon the program. That, the, that a person is working, either because of things, interpersonal relationships that go awry within the program, within a meeting, that sort of thing, where personalities start to prevail over principles and people don't want to go to that meeting because their ex-spouse is going to be there or they don't want to do this because they might run into the person who their spouse was seeing or, or whatever. It, it, that's that's got to be a really difficult thing to get through. And the fact that you got through it is nothing short of amazing.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, at the time, I don't think I ever thought that I would get through it.
0: Really? You thought AA was in the rearview mirror at that point, huh?
1: Um, I don't know if I, maybe I thought AA was, but I thought that I was never going to trust.
0: Yeah. It takes a while to learn, to kind of regain that trust. I've had some situations in my life that that really strained the fabric of uh, of trust and it's a very difficult thing you spend the rest of whatever trying to reestablish it and the best that i was able to do was not reestablish the original trust but kind of establish a new kind of trust if that makes sense
1: true and you know what's funny is you know you know it's been i guess i think the divorce finalized the a, a year and a half ago a little over a year ago i guess may of last year. What's funny is, is that I still believe that there is someone for me and that, you know, I'm still going to be happy and that I'm still going to have a a life that I want. Um, And I can tell you that I would bet before sobriety, I would have thought, you know, I'm never doing this again. I'm Mm -hmm. done. You know, forget the idea of this kind of stuff. But I don't think that everyone is inherently bad. And I don't think that, that everyone wants to hurt me. I mean, I don't feel like, I don't feel like a victim. Yeah, I feel like this yeah. is a situation that happened uh-huh. and it was difficult in the time and I, it was something else I had to learn how to get through. And right. then in some small way, these people did me a favor. What an experience now to be able to share with other people that go yeah. through this that I can say, you can get through this too.
0: Yeah, so the crisis that you went went through turns into a gift that you can pass on to other people who are going through it or are yet to go through it.
1: Absolutely, you know what I mean. There are tons of miracles that happen in this program, and you know, even though we look at it at the at the moment as something that's oh, this is so awful and terrible, those things become the the assets that we have yeah. to be able to share. I mean, no one got here with this great life. Like we all got here with something that happened that was probably pretty damaging, pretty embarrassing, pretty whatever. Uh And then we get to go and share that with other people who are either going through it, may go through it, have family members that are going through it and get to see that, hey, you know what? This may have happened. But in the end, you're going to see that it's going to make you a better person or you're going to get past it and think you won't look at this the same way. And being able to share that with someone else, in my opinion, makes it all worth it makes it all meaningful, gives it all purpose. And I think for the longest time, I didn't know how to look for for the meaning or the purpose of why this was happening. But now I see it as a whole different, I guess the perspective and the lens that I look through is different. It just, it is what it is. And it's something that happened. And it's something that when someone else comes to me in the future and says, I'm dealing with these things, I can say, I understand.
0: Yeah, Let's, you what we sh-
1: need to do is redirect your focus on how you can take care of you right now right. instead of thinking about what you need to take care of in this. I had completely forgotten uh-huh. being busy, working, being in graduate school, doing an internship, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. I for- completely forgotten the importance of caring for myself, which is supposed to be a number one. If I'm not taking care of me, how in the world am I supposed to take care of anything else? I yeah. hadn't been doing that for a long time. I hadn't. I'd been putting my faith and trust in people instead of God. I mean, I all it. these things that it really kind yeah. of redirected my focus back to what was it like when I very first got here, and what were the things that were important that kept me sober, and yeah. you know, all this other stuff was just stuff.
0: Yeah. So you recalibrated your life to sobriety being your number one priority after it slipping for a while.
1: Yeah. I recommitted. You know, the fact that things kind of blew up along the way, you know, is was just whatever. But it's also helps me see that I can make it through some really hard
0: stuff. Yeah. And you have. And what's beautiful about it is you describe the difficult, almost tragic situation that you went through. But at the end of it comes the gift. I wanted to ask you... With regard to gifts, because we talk about how did you get through what you got through, you know, stuff that was tough. But can you think of a couple of gifts that have occurred in your life since you've been sober that probably never would have happened had you not?
1: I can think of a lot of them. Well, I never would have cleared up that relationship with my dad.
0: Oh, yeah. Before he mm-hmm. died.
1: That's for sure. I wouldn't have realized that this is the time to do it. Yeah. And I need to do it now or else I may regret yeah. it. Um, the relationship that I have with my daughter today is pretty phenomenal and as a matter of fact she had a friend in high school who just who actually just overdosed and didn't survive oh, and you know I'm the person she called to talk to about it wow and you know she did this she's a musician so she did this kind of campaign thing on her social media to get people to donate in this kid's name and if they did she would give them her band t-shirts oh, for free yeah. and and she spoke about how you know, addiction has been a part of her life for the people closest mm-hmm. to her that she watched struggle and overcome mm-hmm. it and talk about a gift,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That
1: even my own kid sees that wow. and that relationship with her is so strong That is a gift. and um, the relationship with my family is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I never would have thought that I could, you know, complete my, my education and then pursue higher education and, you know, try for jobs that most people wouldn't have mm-hmm. and and be in a position to be able to accept it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I really feel like the, the ability to believe in myself more than I ever did before mm-hmm. and know that I am 100% capable. Yeah. I think that I was such a give up person yeah. and I'm not anymore.
0: Yeah. yeah. You've spoken to that quite well today. I, for as long as I've known you, I've always wondered about a little bit about the backstory. This means a lot to me that you would let me into your life like this and trust me with putting this together. So sounds like the gifts are—they keep coming for you, don't they?
1: They do keep coming, yeah. And you know what's funny is—is is I know there's going to be more. Oh yeah. You know, I re- I remember early on hearing that. Don't quit five minutes before the miracle. I think that's a true statement. Yeah. Even today, yeah. like the miracles and the gifts just keep coming. Yeah. And the longer that I stick around, the more that I see them and that I feel them and that I receive wow. them.
0: Wow. That's a great sentiment to wrap things up here, Alicia. You're you're a beautiful person. I love you. And you're, you've just you've enriched my sobriety, both knowing you in meetings and in the program. But just today has been a really special time for me. And I want to thank you again.
1: Thank you. Thank you for asking me.
0: Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Alicia C. for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least three people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. Simply tell Siri, Google, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You can also listen at our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.